Hello, and welcome again to the second in a three-part podcast series, which seeks to understand financial crime compliance in the context of cryptocurrencies and cryptocurrency exchanges. My name is Drew McCarthy, and I'm a Senior Managing Director in FTI's APAC Financial Crime Compliance Practice. Here to moderate with me is my colleague in Southeast Asia Practice co-leader, Anna Blizzard. Throughout this podcast series, we will hear from experts from Skadden Arps, Crypto.com, and FTI on the latest issues and trends impacting the use of cryptocurrencies and crypto exchanges, as well as the broader financial crime compliance considerations. Today's conversation represents the second of our series. Our last episode examined the regulatory changes underway in both the United States and Asia. Today's episode seeks to build from that discussion to examine how crypto exchanges are operationalizing compliance in this evolving space. As we discussed earlier, there's a great deal of change and uncertainty at play. And when you couple that with the nuances in these businesses and how they interact with customers, designing and implementing a fit-for-purpose financial crime compliance program poses both challenges and opportunities. Today, I'm joined by my colleague, Boris Richard, Managing Director in FTI's Dispute Practice. I'm also joined by Antonio Alvarez, Chief Compliance Officer, Crypto.com, and Eitan Fish and Javier Urbina from Skadden Arps' Financial Institutions Regulation Enforcement Practice. Javier, let me start with you. There are clearly a lot of regulatory tangles to navigate, including whether or not an organization is considered a money transmitter. From your perspective, how does this figure into the operational setup question? In other words, what does it mean in terms of actually implementing a compliance program, both from a regulatory perspective, but also from a risk perspective, those specific risks confronting the industry? Thank you, Drew. From a US anti-money laundering perspective, I think a threshold question that players in this space may want to ask themselves is whether they are a money transmitter under relevant federal and state laws. The answer to this question has broad implications because as we discussed in episode one, money transmitters in the US have certain registration or licensing requirements and compliance program obligations at the federal level and sometimes also at the state level, depending on the state. This question may be challenging to navigate because the definition of money transmitter is broadly framed in federal and state regulations, and certain exceptions exist that exclude some activity that may otherwise fall within the definition of money transmission. At the federal level, this analysis can get even more complicated if the virtual currency business in question is located abroad but conducts activities in the United States or offers its services or products to persons located in the United States. As we previously discussed, foreign located money services businesses, including money transmitters, are subject to US anti-money laundering regulatory requirements if they conduct business wholly or in substantial part within the United States. The assessment of whether business activities are conducted, quote unquote, in substantial part in the United States can be a slippery slope. Regulators and prosecutors in the US may be inclined to capture as much money transmission activity as they can. So if you conduct business to any extent in the United States or offer services or products to US persons, I think the question of whether you are a money transmitter under US regulations may deserve careful consideration. At the state level, the same challenges may be faced when assessing whether virtual currency activities fall within a particular state's regulations. 
From a U.S. sanctions perspective, it is important to keep in mind that all U.S. persons, including companies organized in the United States and their foreign branches, must comply with U.S. sanctions. Activity involving non-U.S. persons may also be subject to U.S. sanctions requirements. If it has a nexus to the territory of the United States, such as U.S. dollar denominated payments that are routed through the United States. Let's be clear, the applicability of U.S. sanctions is not limited to U.S. financial institutions. Although the U.S. sanctions regulatory regime does not require the implementation of a sanctions compliance program, the Office of Foreign Assets Control, or OFAC, which administers and enforces U.S. sanctions, published guidance in May 2019 that outlines a framework for a risk-based sanctions compliance program and recommends that U.S. companies and non-U.S. companies conducting business in the United States implement a sanctions program. Whether a company has a sanctions compliance program is also a key mitigating factor in OFAC's enforcement determinations. So once we get past this question of whether U.S. anti-money laundering and sanctions requirements apply to an entity, the next step is determining how to best implement and operationalize a risk-based program designed to comply with those requirements. There's certainly friction in trying to implement an anti-money laundering and sanctions compliance program for a virtual currency business, following the same standards or expectations and vision for traditional financial institutions. I think one key challenge for virtual currency businesses is trying to implement effective anti-money laundering transaction monitoring and sanctions screening processes, particularly because of the inherent anonymity of virtual currency transactions. It's often difficult to know the identity or location of a counterparty in a virtual currency transaction. And without such key information, the analysis of an alert triggered by the monitoring or screening system may be incomplete or unreliable. Additionally, there are various tools that exist in the virtual currency world, such as mixing and tumbling, which shuffle several transactions together to disguise the nature and origin of digital assets. Although this method is intended to add another layer of privacy prior to performing a transaction, it may further complicate the transaction monitoring and screening process. If we don't know the identity or location of a counterparty, it is difficult to assess whether a transaction is potentially suspicious or, or whether it involves a sanctioned person or jurisdiction. Although the travel rule requires the transmission of certain payment information between sending and receiving financial institutions involved in a transaction, this rule only applies to transactions that exceed a defined threshold amount, currently set at $3,000 in the US. So that means that for transactions under that threshold, financial institutions may not have access to such information. We also have to keep in mind that travel rule or equivalent requirements vary significantly across different jurisdictions around the world. 
Um, another key challenge that virtual currency businesses are facing relates to travel rule compliance. The primary obstacle to travel rule compliance is identifying the relevant counterparty. Unlike with traditional financial transactions, participants in virtual currency networks may not know the owner or location of a blockchain address. So it is difficult to verify whether the information that is sent to a receiving financial institution pursuant to the travel rule is going to the correct party. There are groups around the world, such as the United States Travel Rule Working Group, that are working on developing protocols and standards to facilitate compliance with the travel rule. Now, beyond these challenges related to transaction monitoring and screening and travel rule compliance, virtual currency transmitters may generally face challenges with operationalizing various aspects of anti-money laundering and sanctions compliance programs, given the existing infrastructure and protocols for transmitting digital currency. The varying platforms through which digital currency can be transmitted and their inherent decentralization may be exploited by illicit actors by, for example, conducting transactions or rapidly executing multiple conversions between various types of digital currencies in order to evade record keeping and reporting requirements. I would say overall, compliance programs for virtual currency businesses largely appear to be in the nascent stage. Some virtual currency businesses are still trying to figure out if they are subject to AML regulations in the United States. This is a rapidly changing environment and players in this space may need to rapidly adapt to those changes. Hey, Tan, maybe I turn it to you just for a second. These types of organizations, they're, they're, they're coming through, they're, they're trying to navigate, you know, whether or not they fall into certain regulatory, I guess, classifications. But given the fluency in, in technology and certain analytic approaches that kind of are ingrained in a lot of these organizations, there's got to be some, some really interesting approaches to solving some of these crunchy, crunchy areas. I would, any observations on some of the best practices and perhaps some of the technologies that, that are, you think are quite exciting in terms of helping to navigate and perhaps reduce some of the friction that um, the regulations and navigating these regulations may cause? Yeah, thanks, Drew. So I think it's what's one of the things that's interesting is there are a lot of questions on the part of the private sector. There are also a lot of questions on the part of regulators. Um, one of the interesting things I, I noticed, and uh, we've spent a lot of time talking about the travel rule, the Financial Action Task Force in in 2000, June 2019 issued a, a report on expectations for their member states. Uh, in terms of regulating virtual asset service providers such as VASPs. Um, a year later, they came out with their 12-month review of how countries are doing from an implementation standpoint. And one of the things they noticed on uh, one of the things they noted on the travel rule is that fewer countries have been implementing uh, the travel rule requirements. Um, at least less so, they've been doing it less so than other areas of AML and CFT compliance, uh, counterfinancing of terrorism compliance. And, and part of the reason for that, at least that the Financial Action Task Force noted, was because enforcement was difficult and they're trying to figure out how to do it. And they also recognize the challenges faced by those 
uh, on the business side where you know there isn't necessarily a, a holistic approach um, and there isn't uh, and, and some certain approaches may not yet be scalable. Uh, so I think that you know one of the things that is important to keep in mind, not not that it will mean that regulators in the future will be forgiving. Um, but while the private sector is grappling with these issues, regulators are also kind of really grappling with these issues. I think that there are, you know, a few areas just in terms of kind of thinking about best practices and how to approach this. And if you are certainly a, if you fall into the basket of kind of a regulated financial institution, which includes money services businesses within that basket, you know, also money transmitters like we've, we've spoken about. Um, you know, I, I think one of the keys in just kind of taking a step back and, and looking at the landscape, one of the expectations that regulators have in, in pretty much any financial crime compliance arena is that you have an understanding of your risks, right? AML and sanctions compliance programs are expected to be risk-based and tailored to a specific institution's risk file profile. Now, that means that they can vary from institution to institution, and that's okay. They're supposed to be malleable, and there's no one-size-fits-all approach. But a key component of that is looking at your risks, doing an assessment of your risks so you can appropriately uh, address those risks, right? How, how do you, from a regulator's perspective, right, how, how can you address your risks if you don't know what they are? Uh, so I think a first step from a best practice standpoint kind of regardless of exactly which basket you fall into, it's taking a look at, at your risk profile and understanding how best to tackle them from a regulatory standpoint, but understanding who are you doing business with, right? What are the risks associated with your specific product? And when and part of understanding who you're doing business with is understanding who your customers are. Now, money transmitters don't have the same customer identification program requirements that uh, a bank has. Uh, they're, they're treated differently from a, from a US regulatory standpoint, but it's still in order to kind of meet uh, many of the reporting and other compliance obligations. And frankly, just from a kind of a, a best practice risk standpoint, um, it's important to have certain protocols and, and controls in place uh, to understand who your customers are and the risks they present to you. I think that, you know, and Javier, as a third item, Javier touched on um, sanctions compliance. It, it is clear from what we have seen that I would say uh, U.S. regulators on the sanctions side have not been as active from a guidance standpoint as perhaps FinCEN has been uh, on the AML side in recent years, but they are showing uh, substantial interest, I would say, more so over the last year than we have seen previously. How are you kind of screening parties that you're in, engaged with uh, in the context of transactions? And I think the last, the last thing I would just note from a kind of a best practices standpoint here is it, it is important to have when questions arise, when issues arise, it, it is important to kind of have an active dialogue with regulators. Uh, better to consult and get it right um, than to guess and get it wrong um, where uh, you know, where regulators are, are going to be less likely to be forgiving, uh, in our experience at least. Um, and I think that, you know, FinCEN and others have tried to make themselves available. Uh, FinCEN has had specific uh, 
sessions that they've held with uh, actors in the crypto industry. I think this Antonio just wanted to uh, just to, to make a comment on, on something you said about when you talk about know your customer and the, and the risk-based approach uh, from an industry perspective, what we find ourselves is that because the banks are taking a risk-based approach into their own programs, um, they're imposing um, even tougher standards to cryptocurrency exchanges that even regulators do. And we end up doing more uh, that the banks do themselves uh, when it comes to, to KYC and, and, and knowing and, and monitoring our customers, which I think is a, it's a ironic twist to say the least. I think that that's a fantastic point, Antonio. I think that as in other areas, we've seen banks in order to address their own risks um, are kind of imposing these types of requirements on, on others. Um, they see this as a riskier space and so to mitigate their own exposure are imposing additional requirements, which may in certain circumstances, just as you say, exceed those that uh, the specific requirements uh, demanded by regulators. I think that's a great, great point. Wow, some really great insights and tips there in terms of best practices and how you address your risks, when quite frankly, in some cases, you don't even know what they are. Eitan, you highlighted risk assessment as a key component looking at the risk profile to understand and how to address the risk from a regulatory standpoint, who you're doing business with, product risk, know your customer, screening, et cetera. And Antonio, you made a really great point around the challenges that crypto exchanges are facing from banks, which are imposing even tougher standards on them than regulators do. Exploring this further, I'd like to turn to Boris. Boris, I know you're receiving more and more inquiries from clients in the crypto space. So we'd love to hear from you about what you're seeing in terms of organizations implementing AML compliance programs and your observations more generally in regards to investigations and disputes in this area. Uh, sure. So uh, again, to tack upon what uh, the previous speakers have said, um, we have definitely seen two big trends. Number one, the decentralized finance platforms, you know, they are taking a much keener interest in becoming compliant. Um, and that's, that's uh, from, from our perspective, that's, that's to be expected because even if you're decentralized and you don't take custody of, of, uh, customer funds, uh, the fact that you, you may be controlling the code of your scripts, right. And the fact that you can stop transactions from, from happening, like for example, when, uh, a few decentralized platforms stop the, the attempts of Qcoin exchange hackers to sell you know, the funds into uh, Ethereum. Uh, that, that basically, you know, lets uh, the DeFi platform realize that they may not be that decentralized or they may not be treated as decentralized platforms. So we have seen uh, a clear pickup uh, of interest. Um, and again, that interest is, is also driven by the fact that institutional investors are taking a much keener interest in being able to deploy their liquidity on decentralized platforms and, and institutional investors will clearly be interested uh, in making sure that uh, there is no illicit crime going on or, or that their counterparties in, are, are you know screened in an appropriate way. And secondly, um, also because of the fact that there, there have been so many hacks uh, in DeFi world uh, this year, um, you know, also argues that they have to be strengthened controls uh, in terms of who transacts uh, on those DeFi platforms. 
Uh, and we know that at least a few hacks um, in the tax and the DeFi world were driven by some of the privacy tools that were, that were deployed on Ethereum platform, like for example, Tornado Cash. So therefore there is a confluence of factor that really pushes um, the DeFi uh, operators into understanding that they have to be compliant and they have to put something in place. Um, the second big trend that we're seeing is uh, the increased interest uh, of traditional financial institutions, either uh, banks uh, or broker dealer sides of, of investment banks in evaluating their potential counterparties in the crypto space. So we're talking about basically onboarding the VASPs and uh, the banks uh, who, who, for example, may deal with some of the VASPs on the fiat side or foreign exchange side, they're realizing that they need to, to have something in place in order for them to be able to evaluate the VASP from a risk perspective. Does that VASP have you know, a robust AML sanctions and CFT program? Uh, and this is this is which we're this is this is the big trend that, that we're seeing. In terms of the challenges of implementation that we're seeing, um, I, I think there are technical challenges and there are regulatory challenges. Um, uh, on a, on a regulatory side, as as uh, you know, Javier and Ethan and uh, Antonio were saying, there is very little harmonization across jurisdictions. Right, the the uh, anti-money laundering uh, directive five in Europe is different from how Swiss authorities are implementing their AML uh, requirements. If FinCEN, uh, you know, gets what they want in terms of lowering the threshold to two hundred fifty dollars, again, that will make the U.S. framework different from the rest of the world in terms of even the threshold. So the lack of harmonization is something that people are realizing, and that that drives their challenges in terms of how to implement them. And in fact, uh, I was participating on a, a text print um, a meeting with New York Department of Financial Services recently. And again, there were several and, and there were many comments and, and the crypto businesses and, um, and other uh, participants were saying harmonization is key because that drives the implementation challenges uh, for the virtual asset service providers. On a technical side, there is also quite a bit of uh, disarray at this point, and we are aware of at least six technical standards that are currently being developed in terms of how to enforce the, uh, the travel rule. You know, uh, there, there are quite quite a few, quite a bit of work uh, to be to be done in that particular space. And the thirdly, uh, albeit uh, theoretically the the best practices or industry standards. Uh, from a conceptual perspective are well known uh, in the sense that it has to be risk driven. Nevertheless, there are two very, uh, quite a few moving components that, that people have to grapple with. How do you onboard your customers? How do you monitor those customers, right? Because the fact that somebody went through the KYC does not mean that he or she will be transmitting or depositing funds into an appropriate electronic address because electronic address could be created on the fly. And crypto exchanges cannot stop deposits from an address quite often. So, and then there is a big piece of transaction monitoring. So how do you implement transaction monitoring? How do you flag certain transactions for the suspicious activity reports, right? At least a few dozen uh, parameters that, you know, the, like, the likes of Elliptic and Cypher Trace and Chain Announcer are offering. So VASPs uh, have to grasp with understanding how to use those signals and how, they how to translate them into the actionable um, you know, actionable, actionable reporting and, and um, safeguarding. 
And finally, in terms of the uh, litigation uh, landscape, uh, the big elephant in the room is clearly the, um, the two lawsuits that were recently launched against Bit BitMEX. Uh, you know, probably the second biggest crypto exchange in the world, domiciled in Seychelles Islands. Um, and we know that they are subject to a civil lawsuit from the uh, CFTC. And we know that uh, you know uh, some of their control people are also in, have been indicted by the DOJ, the Southern District of New York. Uh, what's different this particular time uh, is that BitMEX uh, is not so much accused of lack of registration, but there is a big uh, emphasis in both lawsuits on the allegation that the BitMEX was not AML compliant, that they were violating uh, the Bank Secrecy Act uh, requirements uh, for several years. So again, that's a big lawsuit, and you know we will have to watch what happens. But obviously, it's you know it's a sort of a wake up call for the industry, and it, it me uh, and the vast will we'll be realizing that the enforcement agencies will will be pretty active in this space going forward, especially given the fact that as as we know, the DOJ put out the cryptocurrency inf enforcement framework. Uh, uh, this past October, um, which deals specifically with how to prevent financial crimes um, uh, on on the blockchain uh, on the blockchain uh, platforms, how to enforce the sanctions screening, uh, and we also know um, that uh, for, from the uh, re regulatory perspective, the DOJ has been pretty active, and we know that there was an indictment against Larry Harmon just recently, who allegedly operated for four or five years to mixers, you know, Helix and, Co uh, and um, Coin Ninja. So, uh, and again, there is an indictment from the DOJ, but from a litigation perspective, uh, there will be focus on this area. And from the enforcement perspective, clearly DOJ, CFTC are very keen on making sure, you know, that uh, the Bank Secrecy Act standards are being implemented, uh, you know, as long as a crypto entity, you know, has an even semblance of being a mining transmitter. Thank you, Boris. That was uh, especially on the on the Bitmax. You know, this is something I think we should pick up in the next episode because I, I agree this is a wake up call. I want to pick up a couple other points that you, you brought up and give give Antonio just a chance to to comment, especially around um, this idea of. You know, Antonio, you and I spoke around this. Your term was square peg and round hole, which is which has resonated with me for for quite a bit. But before getting into kind of how this, how operationalizing this, and and how traditional banking approaches and the regulatory frameworks, you know, make sense or, or need to be adapted, you brought up a point around the VASPs and onboarding um, in terms of the banking requirements that are being applied to the likes of a crypto.com exceeding regulations. And I, I'm, I'm interested to get, get your perspective in terms of how that can be, how that can be refined. Antonio, what are, what are your thoughts? Well, on the first item on, on how the banks kind of transpose and, and you know, impose really um, KYC standards to cryptocurrency, I think it's all, it's all based on, on the reputation of the cryptocurrency and the crypto cryptocurrency industry. Um, unfortunately, there is a reputation that uh, crypto is the preferred currency of criminals and uh, that the financial crimes and, and you know, drug trafficking, et cetera, it's all rampant um, in the crypto industry. And, and, and maybe it was at some point uh, five years ago, uh, it, like any other 
industry or any other financial innovation, uh, fraudsters and criminals tend to be the first adopters uh, because they're always interested in how to circumvent the current rules. And when something new comes up, is you know, they're trying to explore it as much as, can, as they can. They quickly have realized that <clears throat> the transparency of the blockchain actually works against them. Um, so law enforcement really is keen on, on the use of, uh, of blockchain from that perspective because you can always trace the funds within the blockchain. So like the industry, there's, a, there's an address that holds most of the funds that were stolen from Mount Gox years ago. And, and we all know those are the funds. Nobody knows who owns them because it's it's private and, and it's anonymous. But every time there's a Bitcoin that comes out of there, the whole industry gets excited about it, right? Because <laughs> we all know those are the stolen funds. So from that perspective, the, um, because of that, um, a lot of uh, a lot of fun, uh, financial crime has left from crypto, right? A lot of people are no longer using dark darknet markets because of the vulnerability, um, and but but there's that stigma, there's that that bad name that is still floats out there, especially within the banking industry, which tends to be very conservative. And and at the end of the day, from a regulatory perspective they need to imp you know, impose their controls based on their assessment of their own risk. And that assessment is very subjective. And when it comes to crypto, we need to get them to understand that it is not as risky as they think it is, that 98% that, that of the transactions are good, um, that, uh, that there, there is a lot of very good very honest, very well-intended transactions that are happening that should be supported and not put through additional friction because there's a very few people that are gaming the system or, or uh, they're, they're doing criminal activity, which is normal in any part of the financial service industry. It's not, it's not rare or distinct. Now, when it comes to the square peg in a round hole, I think it's a great it's a great picture of of how the regulations and the banks are trying to to look at crypto. As as we talked in episode one, um, cryptocurrencies developed as a way to exchange value on the internet, right, and the, the exchange value directly, like in email. But they evolved, and they have evolved substantially. You have evolved in not only in the in the different coins and how they work, but in the services that they're provided. So now you have the terms like utility coins and ICOs and commodities and store values and derivatives. And there's a number of different services that are provided through cryptocurrencies. So the challenge is the regulators that are coming in and and as well as, as uh, traditional banks, when, when they're providing us a service, they're looking at cryptocurrency as one thing and trying to regulate it as one thing. And, and that's where the peg won't go in because they're not one thing. They're multiple things. And, and the funny thing is that from a regulatory perspective, regulators already recognize that financial services cannot be all regulated by the same stick, right? You, regulators don't regulate a store value provider the same way that they regulate a money transmitter, right? Um, or the same way that they regulate a bank or you know, or multiple or an investment company. Yet, when you see cryptocurrencies, they want to put them through all the same hole, right? <laughs> the, all the same round hole, even though the pegs are comes in multiple shapes. And the regulators have learned that 
and then actually put different rules around each one of the products to to protect consumers for the for the use of those products, right? And and I think that we need to evolve and really understand cryptocurrencies to that point where then the regulations can be tailored, the risk appetite of the banks can be tailored to that specific um, type of currency, and that therefore the financial crime prevention programs can be tailored to the specific risks of that financial service that is being provided. Just because it's crypto doesn't mean that it has to go through the round hole. Antonio, thank you. We're just about out of time. So let me first thank Boris, Atan, Javier, and of course yourself for such a terrific discussion. To summarize a bit, our first episode explored the regulatory mishmash of sorts, which the industry is contending with, and not just in the United States. This is a very active area, and industry regulator collaboration is paramount. And in today's episode, we extended into the quote, how do organizations, specifically crypto exchange organizations, operationalize compliance in the face of these evolving regulations? The idea that applying bank-centric regulations to crypto is akin to trying to put a square peg in a round hole, as Antonio put it. It just doesn't work. Yes, there are similarities, certainly, but it isn't a one-to-one match. So herein lies an opportunity and need for regulators and industry to come together to refine regulatory views and the direction through dialogue and collaboration. The goal has to be to harmonize and reduce the level of operational friction, because ultimately, that will help better mitigate the risk of financial crime. So with that, I want to thank our guests again for the time today and, of course, our listeners. Please tune in to our next episode to hear from our experts on the types of financial crime threats and vulnerabilities we're seeing. And until then, if you'd like to find out more about what we do here at FTI and how we help our clients detect and combat financial crime, please reach out to myself or Anna or any of our guests today. Thanks again.